Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dancosta. Today, we're going to bring you stories from the coast of West Africa all the way to Connecticut. Coming up, we'll hear from local author and photographer Ithanye Iwachie. Her new book is Summer in Igboland. It paints an intimate portrait of Nigerian life and identity. We'll take a look inside. Also, Afropop Worldwide's Banning Air tells us about the vibrant music of modern-day Lagos. But first, WSHU reporter Ebong Odama has spent the last few months in Nigeria, where he's been working on the continent's first-ever pan-African news service. He's used to covering the Connecticut State Capitol. Today, he joins us from Nigeria's capital city to tell us more about his project called Gotel Africa. Ebong Odama, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you, John. Why don't you start by telling us what Gotel Africa is? Basically, Gotel Africa started in 2015, and it's aimed at having a multimedia platform, having TV, both terrestrial and uh, satellite, as well as radio and Internet service, uh, a news service, basically. And how unique would, would this be? Is there anything like Gotel Africa right now? Not in Africa. You, you don't have a pan-African uh, news service. And if uh, we're successful at this, it would be the first. So where are you right now? I'm in Abuja, the capital of Nigeria. Basically, we have a bureau here. We are actually headquartered in the northeast of Nigeria in a town called Yola, which is uh, in, in an area of the country that has been pretty badly affected by the Boko Haram insurgency. And we also have a bureau in South Africa, and we're going to be opening up one in Nairobi. And so this truly is going to be Africa-wide. I guess I should start, though, by talking to you about the challenges that are posed by covering Boko Haram in Nigeria. Tell us about covering this terrorist organization and what it's meant to the people there. Let me start by giving you something that I'm working on right now, which is the internally displaced people. Boko Haram has displaced 3.3 million people in the northeast of Nigeria. That's the largest number of displaced people in the world. They have also killed more people than ISIL or any other terrorist organization around the world. So just to give you an idea of the type of devastation that is going on in that part of the country. And as you say that, Ebong, it it strikes me that we are inundated on a daily basis with coverage in America, on the BBC, on networks like Al Jazeera, of what is happening with ISIS in Syria and Iraq. But as much as we, we do hear stories about Boko Haram and the atrocities at times, we don't have anywhere near the sense of the numbers of people they've displaced or the numbers of people they've killed. So it's probably no surprise that you're trying to get uh, news organizations started so that more people can hear about this and other important things that are happening there. Absolutely. The story of, you know, we talk about the schoolgirls. 
the more than 200 schoolgirls that have been missing for, it's getting to two years now. They're just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, their case was quite unique because they were taken from their school and basically abducted and, and vanished. But that's something that's happening, happened on a regular basis for the past two years in most of that area of the country. As a matter of fact, there are two million people without homes who are living in what they call internally displaced people's camps, basically places with no running water or, or any type of facilities and very uh, little or no uh, medical facilities or access to, to medical facilities. So it's a big problem. What are the biggest challenges for you as a journalist covering Boko Haram and how it has extended its influence in Nigeria and then also the displaced people? I mean, what are the, the challenges that you face as journalists right now? There's a lot of suspicion of anyone because, you see, the thing about uh, an insurgency like Boko Haram is that it's hard to identify who an insurgent is. Uh, a small girl could walk into a market and, and blow herself up. A couple could be together. And these are actual incidents that have happened. You know, in Abuja a few months ago, a couple blew themselves up in a park, a motor park, where people were trying to get into mass transit. So it's very difficult. And most of the times, to get into a lot of these areas, you have to be escorted by the military. And you don't always get to have the best experience because there very often people might not open up to you that much. And, and people are wary. But we also have the advantage of having local people on our staff who grew up in these areas and are able to tell these stories in a, a much better way than someone coming from the outside. Given the uncertainty that you talk about where a bombing could happen at any time, do you sense palpably that there is is fear in these cities and in these regions, that people are, are truly afraid that terror could visit them at any time? Well, you know, that's the irony of being in a situation like this. Life goes on. So unless someone told you, uh, more often than not, well, you'll see military checkpoints at certain places. But other than that, people are going about their business. I mean, life goes on. You just hope that you're not at the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm. We're talking with uh, Ebong Odama. He has covered Connecticut State Capitol for WSHU Public Radio for years. He is currently in Nigeria. He's working on a media project called Go Tell Africa, and we're reaching him today in Abuja. Uh, this is where we live. In past interviews, Ebong, you've said that Nigerians in the United States actually have more knowledge of what's happening in Nigeria than the people at home in Nigeria. Why is that? Information technology, basically, internet access is really what has made the difference. And things are changing here because um, people are getting more and more connected here. Mobile technology is actually expanding here in leaps and bounds. That gap is a bit less now than it used to be, but the reason why, why that gap is there is uh, the information age and the fact that uh, people can get on the Internet and get information so quickly on, on events that are happening. Because of that information gap, does something like our good old-fashioned 
uh, medium of radio play a much bigger role right now in Nigeria, Ebon? Well, I'll tell you, with GoTel, for instance, I think uh, radio has a lot more power than television. Uh, Radio has much more of a reach and reaches much more people than TV does. So radio in this part of the world is still king. You mentioned some of the local people who are able to get information. Uh, these are the reporters that you're working with. Maybe you can tell us more about them. Who, who are the reporters that you're working with at GoTel? Most of them are Nigerians. They're born here. Most of them, many of them are from the northeastern part of Nigeria. So this is home to them. This is, uh, they're telling the stories about uh, their neighbors, their friends, The funny thing about it is that a lot of times they don't realize how important these stories are beyond their local environment. The fact that there's so many people around the world who want to know what is going on here. It's like, well, what's so unique? It seems like everyday life to them, but these are really powerful stories. A little girl who lost her parents and is pretty much on her own right now has to be adopted by strangers. A man who loses his arms and legs because he's, he's trying to rescue his children uh, during a Boko Haram raid. I mean, these are human interest stories. These are stories that connect with people all over the world. And they tell these stories every day, and they don't realize what they have. I try and tell them, look, you know, there's a, a bigger story here. There's a a bigger interest beyond the immediate borders. And I think that that's what we in the West are missing about what's happening there, Ebong, is is that we maybe get stories out of Nigeria that are uh, massive in scale. A bombing kills a certain number of people or the terrible kidnapping of hundreds of girls. But we tend to not hear individual stories of people who are either trying to make a difference or people who are suffering because of these crises. And, and that's what you're trying to do, right? Bring these individual stories to a larger consciousness. Absolutely. Um, if we can do that, I think we have done a great service. So what are some things that the Western media doesn't get about life in Nigeria today? Oh, I don't know. There's so many things. You know, you know the thing about it is that there is a, a certain amount of uncertainty to life here. It's a bit more precarious than it would be in the United States. But generally, people seem to have the same goals. They, they want to take care of their families. They want to be able to afford a few luxuries. You have areas of Nigeria which you probably wouldn't know the difference between uh, here and talking about all the amenities. And uh, you have air conditioning and you have access to any media you want and all the luxuries of life. And, and right next door, there, there are people who are barely able to get a roof over their heads and barely able to make a living. So um, I think the stratters in society is one of the things that people don't notice. But there's a vibrancy here. There's a wonderful music scene, and there's a a movie scene in Hollywood that makes fantastic movies that are sold all over Africa. There's a lot going on here. There there are many stories that can be told. I'm wondering what your experience for, for many years covering the Connecticut State Legislature has told you about covering the stories you're telling, because you, know, you and I have spent a lot of time up at the Capitol together, and and often what happens in Connecticut's Capitol is 
people bickering over what, in essence, are incredibly small details in a state that is awash in wealth. And, and when you're talking about the stratification of society in Nigeria, you're talking about something very, very different. Maybe you can talk a bit about the differences in, in covering the day-to-day grind of, of how people make laws in Connecticut and the day-to-day grind of people you know, trying to live in a place like Abuja. Well, if you're talking politics, politics is the same everywhere. (laughs) I don't think politics is different in Nigeria from the U.S. There's crooks and there's scoundrels and the people who are idealistic and across the board, you know. um, But uh, in Nigeria, corruption is a big part of the politics here. Corruption is, is a big, big problem. But uh, the intrigue involved in politics is the same. We had, for the very first time here, an opposition party actually took power in the last presidential election. That has never happened before in Nigeria. And the fact that it happened and the incumbent president relinquished power and congratulated the winner who was in the opposition, it's just never happened before. So... We're progressing in, in Nigerian politics. But, um, yeah, when, when, when you think of some of the bickering that goes on in, in Hartford, and, I, and I've been trying to follow it, and it doesn't seem to have, have ended, you still have bickering over here as well. But uh, it seems as if it, the impact is, the way it affects people's lives is much more visceral here. Politics is a life and death matter very often, and uh, so people really follow it much closer here than they would in Connecticut. Mm. You talk about Go Tell Africa being a pan-African news service. Could you talk for a moment about why you think that that is, that is so important, to have something that covers Africa as a holistic continent as opposed to uh, the only coverage really coming from outside organizations like, say, the BBC, which, of course, covers Africa very well, but from a Western perspective. Why is it so important to cover Africa by Africans? The stories you have in Nigeria are very similar to what you'll get in Kenya or in Ethiopia or in South Africa. But we have a situation here where most African countries, there's very little interaction between them. There's more interaction with their former colonial powers in Europe or with uh, China than there is between Africans. There's very little trade between Africans. But that is changing. There's a situation now where you have Africa is, has probably the youngest average population in the world. And it's a very vibrant population. And they are much more connected than their parents were because of technology, because of the fact that we have the ability of uh, getting on the Internet and seeing a comedy that was produced in Uganda and everyone across Africa knows all about it because they've seen it on YouTube. It's a very uh, dynamic place, and I feel that Africans want to hear from each other. I think it makes people, the connection much more real when another African is telling you the story. I'm wondering what you can tell us about the uh, the penetration of U.S. culture or U.S. television voices into uh, the fabric of life in Nigeria. I, I've spoken just recently with a number of people who are in Middle Eastern countries about 
for instance, what they what they hear coming out of the mouths of U.S. politicians running for president, uh, what that might say about how the United States feels about, uh, say, Islam around the rest of the world, or even the way in which our entertainment programming projects itself into other countries. How big an influence does the Western media have right now in Nigeria, Ebong? I think it's pretty big. The influence of Hollywood and the American music scene, it's huge. However, there's also an indigenous music and movie industry as well that is fashioning itself along pretty much uh, similar lines to what uh, is happening in the United States. and So you find that, um, yes, there's a lot of Western influence. There's no doubt about it. I mean, jeans and uh, T-shirts are <laughs> great. You know, people ha- wear, wear shirts with college names on them and have no idea. <laughs> but um, the world is a much smaller place. There's a lot of influence, cross-cultural influences going on. Western movies are still big, but um, they're getting a a run for their money with uh, Nigerian uh, Nollywood movies. Uh, Before I let you go, Ebong, I'll just ask you one last thing. Why was this so important for you to do, to take time away from your your work in Connecticut and and go start this upstart news service uh, that that you hope will be uh, continent-wide? The concept and the fact that I'd be working with Young Nigerian journalist, it was an opportunity I just couldn't pass up. Simple things that you can impart that make so much of a difference, especially in being able to tell these stories. I didn't have to think too much about this, let's put it that way, before accepting the job. And when are you coming back? Uh, Pretty soon, by uh, the end of the month. So we'll see you back at the Connecticut State Capitol for another exciting legislative session? (laughs) I don't know how exciting it's going to be, but, uh, you know, this is an election year. you got the presidential election is going crazy. You've got uh, the legislature trying to fix the budget again for I don't know how many times they're going to try and fix it before, (laughs) before they get it right. We're in deficit. We're dealing with a, a huge transportation uh, project that uh, we don't know how we're going to finance. Oh, wonderful. That's great stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll be glad to have you back. Ebon Mudama is Connecticut State Capitol reporter for radio station WSHU. He's currently in Nigeria working on a media project called Go Tell Africa. I wish you uh, the best of luck while you're there, Ebong, and safe travels back to the United States. We'll see you back here in Hartford. Thanks so much. When we come back, we'll sit down with Nigerian-American author and photographer Ifanyi Awachie. Her new book is called Summer in Igboland. You can join the conversation at 860-275-7266. Comment on our website, wnpr.org, or you can always find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. We're just one week away from our big Wheelhouse Uncensored event, January 19th at the Tavern in downtown New Haven. We'll be talking news and politics as usual, but it'll be a bit more freewheeling, and you'll get some great food and drink along the way. So go to our Facebook page to find out more, and I do hope to see you there for Wheelhouse Uncensored 2.0. Today, where we live, we're making connections between Connecticut and the West African country of Nigeria. Coming up, Afropop Worldwide's Banning Air will let us listen in to some of the latest sounds coming out of that country's musical hotbed of Lagos. 
But first, Ifanye Iwachie is a Nigerian-American who felt frustrated by the depictions she was seeing of her home country. As a student at Yale, she took a trip that chronicles her journey and what she found in words and pictures in a book and a Tumblr site called Summer in Igboland. Uh, she's also curator of Yale's Africa Salon, and she joins us today from the studios at Yale University in New Haven. Ifanye, welcome to Where We Live. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. Happy to be here. So first of all, what prompted you to return to your birth country after living 19 years elsewhere? Well, I was getting more and more interested in Nigeria between the time when I applied to college at Yale, especially, and by the time I finished up there. Um, I think applying to college and writing admissions essays um, made me reflect on who I was. And that was the first time in my life that I really uh, questioned my Nigerian background and and questioned why questioned how much I knew about it and so I got cur- more cu- more and more curious about the country and um, eventually um, decided to try to find a way to get back and that opportunity came when I started taking photography courses in college and realized that I could use photography as a tool to explore Nigeria myself and also show it to other people. In our first segment, we were talking with reporter Ebong Udama, who is in Nigeria right now, and he's trying to uh, set up a news service there and in some ways, I think, correct some of the the media coverage that comes out of that country. Of course, there's there's so much bad news that comes out of Nigeria. Part of what you were trying to do with this project was look for some of the things in everyday life that, that might provide some good news. Absolutely. I, I thought there could be something persuasive and and personal about providing a firsthand account from someone with my particular perspective, someone who is Nigerian, has strong connections with the country, but is also in some ways an outsider. Um, And so when I went back, I did try to focus on the positive. I think that if you want to know about the poverty and the corruption going on in the country, you have plenty of sources for that. But I wanted to... um, Focus on, on, as you said, everyday interactions, um, bonds between families, bonds between everyday people, education, recreation. I'm particularly interested in the arts, and I think they can be a gateway to interest people in, in other cultures. And so that's something I tried to focus on while I was there um, in terms of exploring different areas and capturing experiences. Um, so the book as a whole, I think, does try to paint a, a a portrait of Nigeria's vibrancy, which um, I know Ebong also mentioned in his interview. So now, when you got there, where did you visit and who did you stay with? Mm-hmm. I, I took a tour, basically, from Lagos to um, uh, a number state in the southeast uh, where um, I went to Onitsha um, and I visited Enugu, which is a, a major town in that region as well, uh, before going south to Port Harcourt, which is another huge city in the country. And I stayed with family, um, many of whom I was meeting for the first time. Um, I had, I, I think many Nigerian kids can relate to the experience of talking with their extended family in Nigeria using phone cards and having to deal with horrible uh, connections and um, that kind of adding distance to um, relationships that are already separated by geography. So it was amazing to go back and discover the country through kind of my family's eyes and their daily lives and use that to ground my experiences and the experiences that ended up forming the foundation of the book. And so what were the big surprises for you, whether it was in the way that your family reacted to you or the things that you were seeing with your own eyes for the very first time, at least in a long time? I mean, what were were the things that really opened your eyes? Well, my my expectation 
I believe was to be welcomed by my family, which of course I was, but um, to also uh, be perceived as American and probably um, teased for being a little too Americanized when I came back. But I I got that reaction mostly from strangers, from people outside my family. I remember countless times walking down the street and having different people uh, yell a certain word at me, um, oibo, which means foreigner and and also white person. Um, so that was a shock, <laughs> especially um, as someone who has has grown up as a as a black woman in America um, to to encounter this concept. And um, it really opened my eyes to um, the the kind of the different markers that I had, maybe the way I dressed, maybe the fact that I was carrying a, a DSLR, pretty high quality camera, um, to the way maybe I spoke to the way I wore my hair that immediately marked me as as an outsider. And that was really hard to uh, contend with when I was, you know, here in my home country, feeling so connected to it. um, And uh, so kind of feeling this kind of patriotism and and love for for the people around me, but still kind of being distanced. Um, So that was a huge that was a huge shock. You, You came to hate that word for outsider. But there was another word that you said you came to love. There was um, the word ne, which means um, mother. It also means woman and can be used to refer to any woman that um, a person um, wants to address respectfully, has a lot of respect for. Um, And I had never been called that before. um, And I had only encountered it in... um, as, as a term for your family member, your mother. And so it, I, I had this beautiful experience where a cousin started referring to me as Nne, and I didn't understand it at first. And when I came to understand its meaning, I felt so flattered by that combination of femininity, um, but also youth, but also kind of um, uh, this matriarch status um, and and uh, respectfulness that were all that that formed this word. Um, so I, I do write about that in the book and, and found that to be um, a beautiful kind of um, antidote to the word oibo and, and other experiences I had. Some of the other things you, you write about, though, are those other ways in which you maybe felt self-conscious about how you dance as an American uh, coming to uh, back to Nigeria or how your hair looks. And, and these were these are not small concerns to you, it seems. Oh, they were huge. I mean, I I wanted to. Everything was um, a battlefield for negotiating my Nigerianness versus my Americanness. So I wanted to show that I was a true Nigerian when it came to the way I danced. I talk about going to a club, which first of all I didn't expect to do in Nigeria, but um, part of what I wanted to show is that those institutions and that Western influence does exist in the in the country. Um, but I remember going to this club and feeling like. I could dance. I was pretty confident in my dancing abilities, but kind of making an extra effort to prove that I could move like a Nigerian, that I knew how to do the fad dances that my cousins were doing um, and the traditional dance moves that I had grown up seeing and that my cousins um, and other people in the club that we were in had probably much more of a mastery over. Um, And when it came to my hair, um, it was really interesting to uh, go to Nigeria with um, an afro and uh, feel, feel like this was a, 
pretty Afrocentric hairstyle. And I think many people I spoke to before I left agreed and thought that was a great idea to go to go back with that style. But um, members of my family kind of said, what are you doing? <laughs> you need to go back with braids. You need to go back with um, straight hair or more um, controlled, neat, uh, conventional hairstyle. And when I got to Nigeria, not so much in Lagos, not so much in the cities, but in the in the village and um, in Port Harcourt, um, people were stunned that I would wear my hair as it naturally, as it grows naturally um, in a kinky style. And a lot of people urged me to put my hair in braids, which of course I'd done before and, and had chosen not to. Um, but even that was, was a case of um, having preconceptions on my part and having them um, be upended by my actual interactions with with Nigerians. And that's what I think is so fascinating about your book, too. It, it seems like so much of your discovery was about the details. You got some of the broad strokes easily right, and then you were learning details about whether or not how people would react to your hair or whether or not to eat a particular food with a fork or eat it with your hands. Right. Yes. Um, I think... It was it was really interesting um, negotiating how to deal with food. I remember um, wanting to prove that I was Niger- that I had a Nigerian stomach, and so <laughs> I ate everything that was presented to me, including meat. I'm I'm vegetarian um, in the states, as I like to say, but um, uh, I didn't want to even start that conversation in Nigeria, where the cuisine is is basically carnivorous um and i shouldn't say that there's a huge diversity of food but meat is an important part of it um but i you know before i went i made very careful notes to you know eat fufu which is a a starch that's eaten with soup or stew um with my hands versus with a fork because that would be the american way to to eat um i should you know try everything that was presented to me so as not to appear this spoiled american child who had prissy eating habits um and to learn to deal with spice um i don't have a i didn't have a very high spice tolerance before i went and um after i was in the country i really struggled <laughs> to deal with a lot of the delicious food that was presented to me because it was so spicy but even then i really fought through it all for the sake of creating this um image of myself as, as a true nigerian girl <laughs> We're talking with Ifanya Awachie, who's a curator of Yale's Africa Salon. She's an author and photographer, and her book is called Summer in Iboland. It's also a Tumblr site where she shows lots of pictures of the food that she ate and some of the other travels that she had in her home country of Nigeria. You, you wrote in a chapter called Queen of Nigeria, uh, this uh, small paragraph, you wrote, uh, Nigeria feels like an inheritance I've been awarded after 19 years of owning nothing. It's as if someone has flown me to a secret island and said, congratulations, this is yours. Between the surreal, uh, surreality of uh, seeing the country that played the backdrop of my parents' bedtime stories and being treated like royalty by my aunts and uncles, I might as well be a lost queen. It's exciting to be back. And you, you sort of sense that excitement. I, I, I have to ask you, I'm going to guess that that excitement um, ebbed and flowed, right? At times you felt <laughs> as though you were you were the lost queen returning home, and I'm sure at other times you felt quite like the fish out of water. Oh, definitely. And there were times when I was sightseeing and I was out and I was meeting people and seeing things for the first time. And there were times when I was bored and there were times when the power was out and I was lying around with my cousins just kind of, you know, 
messing around on our laptops for the duration of their remaining battery. Um, (laughs) There were times when I was um, waiting to be picked up, to be taken somewhere, because the only way to travel is really by car, if we needed to go long distances. Um, But as, of course, I tried to um, concentrate on the most dynamic and exciting moments. Um, and those are the ones in the end that those are the times that, that taught me the most and um, the experiences that stand out most in my memory. Um, we, we talked with Ebon Odama earlier about the influence of uh, Western culture in Nigeria, but then also uh, the influence of movies coming out of, of Nigeria for the rest of, of Africa. You write about very early on in your travels there, sitting down to see a really American action film, White House Down, and feeling somewhat nervous about this notion of, of watching America crumble in front of your eyes so far away. Yeah, that was a crazy experience. I remember sitting in the theater and watching the scene where um, the terrorist, the terrorist, and I believe they were d- domestic terrorists, um, blow up the White House. And first of all, I'd never seen that in any film before. I'm sure maybe it's been done before, but it was my first time seeing that. And then having just touched down in a foreign country that was also um, the country that I, the second country that I hold citizenship in. Um, I felt torn, literally torn between these two worlds, feeling like I was so attached to this um, uh, place that I was seeing on screen, which is a symbol for one country that I call my homeland, while sitting in another that I should be equally attached to but knew much less about. I don't think I would have been as attached to, you know, the um, equivalent in um, Nigeria. Um, And so that moment kind of symbolized my... um, my state of mind at the moment, being an American and feeling very strongly attached to the States, but also being Nigerian and um, having to constantly straddle both of those worlds, never quite choosing either side. This uh, this notion of how uh, the West views Nigeria is, of course, something that's that's very interesting to me in our conversations today. We hear so much coverage of other parts of the world in which American politicians say have strong opinions about a lack of information. But when it comes to the entire continent of Africa and certainly uh, Nigeria, uh, American politicians seem to have what I can best describe as a lack of interest, uh, almost no understanding of life there at all. Do, do you feel that when you're there, that there's a, a disconnection between what life is like in, in Nigeria and, and what the West may think of it? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I felt the Western gaze or any kind of Western presence while I was there. Um, rather, I felt a kind of Nigerian gaze looking outward. Um, a lot of the culture that my cousins and family consume is um, American or British. I remember watching the BBC with uh, a great uncle of mine. Um, and so while I was there, it felt like, you know, the, I'm in Nigeria. This is life. This is culture. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, what the West is doing. Um, but I do feel when I'm here and definitely still think this having having been to Nigeria and learned more about daily life there, that there is a lack of, of interest in the country beyond these kind of major extreme issues that we always talk about from terrorism to corruption to widespread disease, etc. And I think part of the project of my book was to op- open a window onto those everyday experiences. I remember hearing Teju Cole speak at an event on, at Yale recently, and he talked about 
the project of of uh, African authors being to show that there are lives down there. When you're creating policy, when you're deciding to send drones overseas, um, p- politicians don't always think about the actual individual lives that their actions are going to affect. And so I wanted to shed some light on what those lives were like um, and help um, everyone from people planning their next trip potentially to Africa to people in power to um, see Nigerians as individual people. I just want to get a quick phone call here. Ted is calling from Orange. Hi, Ted. Go ahead. Oh, hi. Uh, thanks for having me. I just wanted to uh, appreciate this young lady who decided to go to Nigeria and do this. This is wonderful. Uh, I'm at Yale, and I've seen a couple of Nigerian students who, you know, originally from Nigeria anyway, who are Yale, and I always try to encourage them to, uh, you know, find time to go to Nigeria and see the life there and find ways to put things together and encourage other people to go and come back. I think it's wonderful. I want to encourage her for doing that. I brought my kids to Nigeria this past summer. I mean, they're young. They're 11 and 4. Uh, the biggest thing, the, the concerns they had was whether they, there was Wi-Fi. Yeah. And um, uh-huh. I, was actually del- <laughs> I was actually delighted that their biggest problem was whether there was Wi-Fi. So I made every effort to get Wi-Fi for them. But uh, we got to the village. They didn't even remember that we had Wi-Fi. They had a mm-hmm. wonderful time in the village. Uh, I, I want to say this, this is great to hear from this lady. Thank you so much. Ted, thank you very much for your phone call. Uh, Ted, thank you so much. Wow. Yeah, and, and, and it's it sounds like he had an experience in some ways somewhat similar to yours. Uh, but before we run out of time, I should I should ask you, do you have plans to go back now that you've had this seemingly somewhat life-changing experience? Are you going to go back and write some more about uh, life in Nigeria? I absolutely will, and I don't have definite plans in place right now, but I do want to expand summer in Igbo land. Um, and so I'm currently looking for ways to, in different, in different projects that I could do under this kind of umbrella goal of rebranding Nigeria um, that, could, that could take me back there, but definitely planning to visit as much as possible in the future. The book is Summer in Igbo Land, and uh, you can find out more at our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Ifanya Wache is a curator of Yale's Africa Salon. She joined us from a studio at Yale University. Ifanya, thank you so much for joining us, and thanks so much for sharing your book. Thanks so much, John. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the music of Nigeria with Banning Air from Afropop Worldwide. That's next, Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's program, our weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, will recap President Barack Obama's final State of the Union address. It'll have Governor Dan Malloy sitting in the First Lady's box. Uh, Meanwhile, former President Bill Clinton swings through Connecticut to fundraise for his wife's efforts to be the next president. All that plus more from the week's news. Coming up on tomorrow's Where We Live, of course, live coverage of the president's speech tonight from NPR. Today on Where We Live, we're making connections from Connecticut to the West African country of Nigeria. We started our conversation today with Ebong Udama. He's a reporter for WSHU Radio. He usually covers the Connecticut State Capitol. Now he's in Nigeria helping to start a new news service there. I asked him about something that he and I have in common the music of that country. We ran into each other a few years back when Sion Kuti, one of the talented musical sons of Afrobeat icon Fela Kuti, came to a club in Hudson, New York. So here's what Ebong had to say about some of the music that he's listening to in Nigeria now. Let me just tell you this. Lagos is the musical capital of Africa right now. Anyone who wants to produce music and wants to really reach the rest of the continent comes to Lagos now. 
For a long time, it was music out of the Congo that seemed to have the Pan-African reach. But right now, the artists based in Lagos and the producers based in Lagos are probably the most prolific in Africa right now. And so you have Africans from all over the continent coming to Lagos. I think Lagos is like the New York of music for Africa right now. And there's just so many of them, I don't know where to start. <laughs> there are just so many. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable how the ferment that's going on in Lagos right now and the, the amount of music that's produced. And a lot of it is based on the fella Kutis and the high-life musicians of old but like the rap musicians, they listen to these old records and they come out with their new versions of the same old songs. So I am very, very, very impressed with the vibrancy of the music scene in Lagos. We're lucky to have one of the world experts on the music scene in Africa, Banning Air, senior editor and producer of Afropop Worldwide. He joins us periodically to talk about music from the continent. And Banning, welcome back to the show. Hey, John. Nice to be here. So when Abong says that uh, Lagos, Nigeria, is the musical capital of Africa right now, do you think he's right? got it right. (laughs) Yeah? So tell (laughs) us why, yeah. Well, it's interesting, and and it's exactly what Ebon was saying, that that it it really, the sort of, the the torch has passed in Nigeria is is it now. There's a lot that goes into this, really. Uh, For a long time, there's been in in many African capitals, imitations and reflections of R&B and hip-hop, and that that wave kind of washed over the continent over the last 10 or 15 years. But what's happened in Lagos and in Nigeria generally is in the last, say, seven, eight years, has been a real sort of turning away from the idea of imitation, still retaining a lot of that influence, and you hear it in the productions. You listen to the music now, yes, there are connections with Afrobeat and older music, but it's, it's a very different production style. It's much more contemporary, much more electronic, a lot of vocal mannerisms that you would take out of R&B, but you're hearing more and more African-Nigerian content in the rhythms and the messages. But the other thing about it, this the music that is generally called Niger pop, although some people in, in the diaspora refer to it as Afro beats with an S, which is a little confusing, but uh, it's referring to this new wave of music, mostly coming out of Lagos. And it's, it somehow has transcended ethnicity. A lot of, a lot of the music that was, that we, for example, focused on in the early years of Afropop juju music from King Sonny Ade and Ebenezer Obe and big names like that was very much coming out of Yoruba tradition. And it was it was perceived as modern and having diluted tradition in, in those days. And yet now we look at, back at it as the traditional music. Mm-hmm. So it just shows you how things change. But this new, they've kind of hit a sweet spot now with Niger Pop where it sounds very contemporary, and it's kind of transcended ethnicity to a large degree. A lot of the vocals are in pidgin, which means that they're somewhat understandable to English speakers, which means that it can find an audience in Kenya or South Africa. Iban was talking about his pan-African news service. Well, that's already kind of existing in the world of video contests and music contests. So these big artists, and as Iman says, it's just, uh, it's just a blizzard mm. of names in, in Lagos now, but they can find audience in Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, South Africa, all through Anglophone Africa. And that's, 
just completely different than the world that Phil Acuti and King Sonia Day operated in. Well, I, I asked Ebong to give me a couple of names of artists, and he said there were there were too many to even even name. You brought us a few, so let's listen to a little bit of music from Olamide. So, Banning, as we're listening, tell us a bit about uh, about this artist. Okay, Olami Bey is a rapper, a hip-hop artist, mostly raps in, in Yoruba. He has a, he started his own indie label called YBNL, Yahoo Boy No Laptop, uh, which is kind of indem- in, in indigenous of the, the humor that you uh, that you get in this music. But uh, he, the th- one thing you notice right away, just in that little clip, is the rhythm. It's 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 not. It's not a hip-hop rhythm. It's not a rhythm you would ever hear in, in American rap or R&B. It's actually closer to a clave rhythm, which you could connect with Congolese music, which, as Ibam was saying, used to be the big Pan-African music. But it also is a rhythm you hear a lot in high life. So it's kind of it's making connections with African music history, even though it has a very international, even American aesthetic feeling about it in the production and in the rapping. Uh, another artist to, whose music you brought us is uh, Yemi Alade. And let, let's listen to a little bit of, of this song. And here, uh, Banning, once again, we see this kind of fluidity of language in this track. Absolutely. Well, she, she does a lot of pigeon, but she's she's interesting. Yemi Alade is interesting because she has a, a Yoruba and an Igbo parent. So she is, again, sort of transcending this, this ethnic identity. She, she gets beyond that. Also, you hear in, in the rhythm of that song, it's got that rolling triplet, tri, triplet kind of kind of feeling, which again is a very African thing, and that's something that's come into Niger pop very strongly just in the last few years. It's uh, and it, it again it it represents this 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 idea of being connected to the world, being connected to international pop music, but also strongly asserting an African identity, a Nigerian identity within that, which is always the trick to get that sweet spot where you're. You're taking enough of, of, of the international vibe to be appealing to a big audience, but not so much that you're accused of imitating or that you just feel like, like a pale shadow. You, you can assert identity within that. And Yemi Alade, who, by the way, is featured in the Afropop show that will be on the air uh, this Saturday, Africa Now. It's a well-timed for this conversation, <laughs> along with a lot of other big stars like WizKid, Burna Boy, P-Square. It's just it's just amazing what's going on in Nigeria now. We have we're going to go back there next year and really take the pulse of this. And, and when you when you say when you go back and you take the pulse of this, I mean how how rapidly do you see change in a music scene like the one that you're chronicling in Lagos right now? 
Well, this has been this has been pretty rapid. Uh, you know, one thing we have to mention, we mentioned Nollywood a little bit, the film industry. Yeah. And and that is, by different counts, the second or third biggest film industry in the world. It is it is massive. It is just really real that you can't overestimate how influential it's been. And all these songs, the two songs we just heard, and all the big songs in Nigeria now are released not just as audio. They're almost all of them are videos, and often directed by major Nollywood directors like Clarence Peters, who's the son of a big uh, Juju music star, Sheena Peters. Clarence uh, directs really beautiful, wonderfully produced, interesting, fun videos for virtually all these songs. And people will buy the songs on, on VCDs so that, so that instead of 12 audio tracks, you have 12 videos and you just put, pop them into your unit at home and you're playing it on the TV. And this is a very normal form of consuming music now in Nigeria, but elsewhere also. But it's very much driven by the massive success of this Nollywood industry, which has been infiltrating the continent for years and, and, and is, is uh, really transformed the way people consume music. That's been fast. I myself have actually never been to Nigeria, but our, we've had uh, Sean Barlow, our, our director, and, and others have gone there. And it wasn't like this a few years ago. It is pretty fast. The change is, is amazingly fast. Banning Air is senior editor and producer of Afropop Worldwide. If you want to know more about some of the sounds coming out of Legos, just listen to their program Saturday night at 10 o'clock here on WNPR. Of course, you can always find out more at WNPR.org. Always good to hear from you, Banning. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. We'll go out with some music here, and uh, I want to let you know that our program is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Rives. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Our digital editor is Heather Brandon. The executive producer of Where We Live is Katie Talarski. Thanks to Ross Levin and Stephanie Reef, our interns. Continue this conversation, wnpr.org slash where we live, and find out about our Wheelhouse Uncensored event on our Facebook page at Where We Live.